I was surprised by a number of things, and I'm not sure I can recall them all now. I was surprised by the apparent closeness of the horizon. I was surprised by the trajectory of dust that you kicked up with your boot. And I was surprised that even though logic would have told me that there shouldn't be any, there was no dust when you kicked. You never had a cloud of dust there. That's a product of having an atmosphere. And when you don't have an atmosphere, you don't have any clouds of dust. Wow, Anna. (laughs) So you must be talking about the moon's surface. Exactly. So that was a quote by Neil Armstrong, and it was actually sourced from the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. So what these are, it's a record of the lunar surface operations that were conducted by the six pairs of astronauts who landed on the moon from 1969 through 1972. If you are interested at all in space or especially the moon landings, I highly recommend you check this out. It contains interviews and quotes from 10 of the 12 astronauts who landed on the moon and it has an incredible amount of information so i highly recommend you check it out yeah and we'll have a link to that on our podcast website exactly it's really interesting i spent i went down a rabbit hole reading tons of it it's truly incredible but to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the apollo 11 lunar landing this year we could not skip over doing an episode on the lunar module it is fascinating and we're so excited to share all of the research we've done for this topic with all of you. Yeah, we're all ready to talk about it, but first, how are you doing, Hannah? I'm doing pretty good, Anna. Yeah, I can't complain. Life is pretty solid. I've been I've been listening to a lot of TLC lately. Oh my god, like waterfalls? <laughs> like waterfalls and scrubs. And do they do uh, <laughs> Did they do that song called Ugly? I think so. I think they did. That was a great song. That was a good song. It started with a karaoke on Friday, and ever since then, I've been putting TLC on loop. Throwback weekend. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? Um, It was the Scrub song by TLC. That was the one. That's a good song. Yeah. I think that's really good. Mine is either Say My Name. Oh my gosh, Say My Name. By I Destiny also did Child. that one. That was really good. Or All Star by Smash Mouth. Heck yeah. But apparently somebody told me that got memed, and I guess I didn't know that. <laughs> We gotta check out this meme later. I'm not young and cool later. I guess there's multiple memes on it. I guess You're that always. means when something gets memed, but I didn't know that. Um. Oh. So anyway, yeah. Anna, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Clearly, my second favorite karaoke song has turned into a meme. So I'm suffering. <laughs> but aside from that, I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this episode. Yeah. I just ate some yummy pastries. Oh my gosh, thanks for getting those, Anna. You're welcome. It was a really good start to the evening because I went to buy a pastry and because the coffee shop was close to closing, they gave me a cookie for free. (laughs) Winning. So you can't be in a bad mood when you get a free cookie. Nope, not at all. I have some delicious sparkling water. And we made some quality instant coffee. (laughs) Okay, it was not bad. (laughs) I think actual coffee is better, but that was not bad, Anna. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Anna. (laughs) Anna has this thing where she always... She's... A kind of a coffee snob. <laughs> but That's that just nice, means <laughs> but you're not wrong. But that just means that she has a fabulous taste in coffee and whenever I go get coffee with her, it's always great. <laughs> I always just get the same thing. But that was not bad. We should not knock instant coffee. However, I do like regular coffee better, but I will take instant coffee in a pinch. So on that note, I'm all ready to go. Yeah, let's you ready? deep dive into the lunar module. Alright, so there is a lot of material we're about to talk about. So we're first mm-hmm. gonna start with the design. 
We're going to do the standard thing where we go in the design and history. They are so closely interwoven that they will kind of bleed over into the other. So we tried our best. If you have questions about something, it's probably mentioned in the following section. So we're going to start with the lunar module, or the it's commonly abbreviated LM, but said LEM. It was the first lunar lander spacecraft that was flown from a lunar orbit to the moon's surface. So as I mentioned earlier, it brought in total 12 astronauts to the moon's surface over the course of six missions. So two astronauts for each mission. And it is famously what brought astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the surface of the moon during the Apollo 11 mission. So there were multiple lunar modules. How, how many were there? And then what happened to all of them? Yes, that's a good point. So for this episode, we're going to be talking about the lunar module in general. Not just the lunar module for the Apollo 11 mission. We're not talking about the Apollo 11 mission specifically. Mm-hmm. We are talking about the technology that is the lunar module. So there were 13 lunar modules made. However, I saw on another episode that there were 15 made, but that it said the 15th one was scrapped. So I don't know if that meant they never started building it. And it said the 14th one was never used. I know for a fact there were 13 made. There were possibly 15 made, but 14 and 15 were scrapped. So there were at least 13 lunar modules. 10 of them were flown. Six went to the moon. And then interestingly enough, The 13th lunar module is on display. It was never flown, but it is on permanent loan from the Smithsonian Institute to the Cradle of Aviation Museum located in Long Island. I didn't know that. I actually think that's really interesting, and now I kind of want to go check it out. So if you live in the Long Island area, go check out the lunar module. Uh, I bet it's amazing. So then I was also curious. I was like, what happened to the other 12 to 14 lunar modules? So, the lunar module has two stages, which I'm going to dig into later. It has an ascent stage and a descent stage. So, the ascent stage for the majority of them was either crashed into the moon deliberately or it burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. One, so LM-4, was nicknamed Snoopy. That's the ascent stage, and it's still in solar orbit. So, it's the only surviving flown lunar module, and it's just going around the sun. I believe this was for the Apollo 10 mission. This is where the lunar module entered lunar orbit for the first time, but it did not land on the surface of the moon. So they actually did some test missions before Apollo 11 with the lunar module, trying to get it into lunar orbit um, before landing on the moon. So Apollo 11 was not the first lunar module. All right. So on that note, let's dig a little bit into the design. So as I mentioned earlier, it had two stages, an ascent stage and a descent stage. I'm going to start with the descent stage because in my head, it had to descend to the Earth's surface and then ascend back up. So chronologically, it makes sense to talk about the descent stage first. That makes sense to me. That's what I thought so too. Every article I read put the ascent stage first, but that didn't make sense to me. I noticed that too. So I I like your approach to it. Yeah, I thought chronological order, you can't ever go wrong. Mm -mm. So the descent stage, or the lower half in most cases, is still on the lunar surface. And it had three main purposes. So when I say it was still on the lunar surface, I mean the lunar modules that have flown. Most of those, the ones that have touched the moon, the descent stage is still on the moon. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And that's very cool. I did not realize that. Isn't that really interesting? I didn't know that either. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a spooky fact. Yeah, there's just all these lunar module bases just hanging out on the moon. So the lunar module, the descent stage had three main purposes. It was to descend to the moon's surface, provide a base for exploration of the lunar surface, and then return to the command and service modules. So on that note, I think we need to kind of do a little bit of a quick con ops of the Saturn V. 
So before we dig into the specifics of the lunar module. So EconOps in awe is a really hot buzzword in the aerospace engineering world. Mm -hmm. It normally just means a concept of operations or like, which basically means like an overarching set of instructions for how you're going to do something or a layout. Like a timeline. Exactly. Timeline is a much better word. So we're going to do a quick EconOps of the Saturn V. So the first stage of the Saturn V was the S1C, which is the first stage. The second stage was the S2. The third, the third stage was the S4B. Then we had the lunar module. Then there was an adapter, and that adapter hooked onto the Apollo spacecraft. I'm sorry, I have to burp. Too much salsa water. We're going to cut that out. We're going to cut it out. <laughs> so there was the S4B, and then there was the lunar module. And then the lunar module was connected to the Apollo spacecraft by the lunar module adapter, which just kind of looked like a cone that went around the lunar module and attached the S4B to the Apollo spacecraft. So the Apollo spacecraft is actually what held the astronauts on the trip from Earth to lunar orbit. So it held three astronauts. And this contained the command module. It, it was the command and service module. It had three astronauts. Two of them would go down to the moon surface, and then one of them would stay in the command and service module. And then on top of that, there was the escape rocket. And what this would do was that if there was a problem, in the event of a malfunction during launch, the escape rocket would effectively evacuate the astronauts quickly while in the command module. I want to say that part again anyway, so we're just going to restart. I don't know where I want to restart from. I'll just start from the... Okay, I'll just start from S4B again. Okay, so there was the S4B, and then after the S4B, there was the lunar module. So the lunar module is what carried the astronauts to the moon, and that's what we're going to talk about. However, for the CONOPS, after the lunar module, there was a lunar module adapter, and then the adapter connected the lunar module to the Apollo spacecraft. The Apollo spacecraft is what held the astronauts, and it contained the command and service module. It had three astronauts. Two of them would go to the moon's surface. One of them would stay behind with the command module. And then on top of the <laughs> Apollo spacecraft was the escape rocket. And so the escape rocket would be used in case of a malfunction during launch. So if there was a problem, the escape rocket would effectively quickly separate the astronauts in the command module from the rest of the vehicle. All right, so now that we've done our quick con ops, let's talk about more about the descent stage. So we've already talked about the three main purposes. Effectively, get to the moon, provide a base for exploring the moon, get the astronauts back off of the moon's surface, and back to Earth. So the lander actually had 18 engines. It had two large rockets, one for descent to the moon and another for return to lunar orbit. Lunar orbit, excuse me. And then 16 small altitude control engines clustered in quads and pointing up, down, left, and right around the ascent stage. I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit. So this was the first crewed spacecraft to operate exclusively in space, and it was the only crewed vehicle to land on the moon. All right, before we dive into the specifics of the lunar module, let's do a real quick conops of the Saturn V. So conops in our field is a really hot buzzword. It's a concept of operations, and it kind of serves as a timeline, more or less, of how things will go. So normally you hear, like, what are launch day conops? It's like, what is the order of operations we're going to do things in? to make rocket launch happen. Yeah. Usually presented in a step-by-step diagram. Yeah. Very much like an instruction manual for how we're going to launch a rocket. And so just, we're just going to do a really quick breakdown of these stages of the Saturn V so that when we talk about them, you know what we're talking about. So the first stage would be the S1C. 
Then there was second stage is the S2. The third stage is the S4B. Then there was what we're talking about, the lunar module. And then there was an adapter, which is just like a metal cone that covered the lunar module and connected the S4B to the Apollo. It connected the lunar module to the S4B and the Apollo spacecraft. So it was like sandwiched between the two. So the Apollo spacecraft is what held the three astronauts. So as I mentioned earlier, only two astronauts went to the moon on every mission. That is correct. There were three astronauts per mission. Two would go to the lunar surface. One would stay behind with the command and service module, which would be the Apollo spacecraft. And then on top of that, there would be an escape rocket. So in case of an emergency on the launch pad, when the astronauts were in the vehicle that required evacuation, the escape rocket would very quickly separate the astronauts in the command module from the rest of the vehicle, such that if there would be an explosion, the astronauts would not be harmed. All right, now that we've done a real quick concept of operations, the astronaut, the, not the astronauts, the astronauts had a lot of purposes, but the lunar module had three main purposes. It was effectively to descend to the moon's surface, provide a base for exploration of the lunar surface, and return the command module and service modules. So, in order to accomplish that, the lander had 18 engines. It had two large rockets, one for descent to the moon and another for return to lunar orbit. It also had, in addition to that, 16 small altitude control engines clustered in quads. These pointed up, down, left, and right around the ascent stage. I'll talk about that a little bit more down below. So, the lunar module was the first crewed spacecraft to operate exclusively in space, and it was the only crewed vehicle to land on the moon. It had two stages, as I mentioned earlier, too. Ascent and descent. I'm going to talk about descent first because in my head, the lunar module had to descend from lunar orbit to the surface of the moon and then ascend back. So I'm going to go with the order of operations. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And start with the descent stage. I feel like in our research, we saw a lot of ascent first and descent later. Yeah. (laughs) But this makes more sense to me. They always talked about ascent first. I was like, but chronologically, ascent doesn't happen first. In the case of this, ascent happens first for a lot of other space vehicles, but not for the lunar module. So we're going to talk about the descent first. The descent stage was the unmanned portion of the lunar module. And it was, its primary job was to support a powered landing. So I was required to, and I got these from the Apollo news reference that I found in the NASA website. The first one was to support the entire ascent stage. The second one was to provide for attachment of the landing gear. The third was to support the LM in the spacecraft to LM adapter. So as I mentioned earlier, that sat under the command service module and attached to the S4B. So the fourth one was to provide structure to support the scientific and communications equipment to be used in the lunar surface. And the fifth one was to act as the launching platform of the ascent stage. So those were the five official requirements of the descent stage, word for word, from the Apollo News reference. Wow, that's a lot of pressure on the descent stage. The ascent stage is unmanned, so I feel like it doesn't get a lot of credit. But it was was a lot, especially because it was two-thirds of the mass of the LEM at the Earth launch phase. Wow. So I was like, what is Earth launch? That means full. So it would be like a wet mass. Like it's for pilf. Filled with propellant. Gotcha. So that is because the descent stage engine was larger than the ascent engine. Therefore, it had a lot more propellant. It had an octagonal shape supported by four folding landing gear legs. It also had a throttleable, throttleable, ooh, that's a hard word. It is. Descent propulsion system, DPS engine, with four hypergolic propellant tanks. 
So effectively what hypergolic means is it's just that the propellants spontaneously ignite when they come in contact with one another. This normally consists of a fuel and an oxidizer. So the advantages of a hypergolic propellant is that they can be stored as liquids at room temperature and they are easy to ignite reliably and repeatedly because all you need is for them to come in contact with each other. Disadvantages are that it's difficult to handle due to their extreme toxicity and or corrosiveness. That makes it a little bit dangerous. Okay, so this being a throttleable propulsion system, where is the information coming from for the engine to decide how to throttle the propulsion system? That's a really good question. So there was actually a wave Doppler radar antenna that was mounted to the engine heat shield. And what this did was it monitored altitude and rate of descent data to the guidance system and pilot display. On a similar note, it's not actually related to uh, <laughs> actual steering, but it is related to information, like feedback loops, was that almost the entire stage was covered in Kapton foil blankets for thermal insulation to make sure that the stage did not get too hot. Another interesting point that I learned is that they actually crumble these Kapton blankets. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that they have minimal contact with one another. Because when it has full contact, then hot and cold can radiate through them immediately, where uh-huh. if they touch each other minimally, then there isn't as much transfer of heat or cold. Gotcha, because there isn't as much surface area making contact immediately. Exactly. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that's why they crumpled them. That is so interesting. I thought they just got crumpled eventually. Because Kapton blankets are kind of just like pieces of aluminum foil. It's like they like the marathon blankets almost? Do they look like that? Yeah, they kind of look like that. Exactly. That's a really good... One of those like emergency blankets that are that like aluminum foil. It's like It feels like a hybrid of aluminum foil and plastic wrap. Mm. Exactly. Yes. But it is... um, a much more expensive material than a 99 cent emergency blanket. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't really effective at keeping heat in, though. So it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. So then and it had equipment stored in the modular equipment stowage assembly or the MESA. So this had a drawer mounted on the left hand forward compartment, surface evacuation tools, sample collection boxes, and a camera with a tripod. tripod. Ooh. And I didn't know this, but the camera automatically activated when the MESA was opened. So what this did was it would allow for pictures to be sent of the astronauts on the moon back to Earth. So right when they opened it, it would send the first pictures of the astronauts on the Earth on mm. the moon to Earth. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't realize that it was triggered when they opened that compartment. Yeah. So then another fact is that there was a U.S. flag carried in a container on the ladder for every mission. And then just some overall dimensions. The height of the descent stage was 10 feet, 7 inches. Plus 5 feet 7 inches for landing probes. The width minus the landing gear was 13 feet 10 inches. And then the mass, including propellant, was 22,783 pounds. This is the height of the... Just the descent stage. Just the descent stage. Purely the descent stage, not the whole thing. Gotcha. All right. So now that we've gone down to the (laughs) moon's surface, we want to get those astronauts back to Earth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do that with the ascent stage. So the ascent stage was effectively the control center of the LM. So the whole thing would descend together. Mm -hmm. The descent stage and the ascent stage would descend together. It's just that the descent stage would stay on the moon. And so that is why when I mentioned earlier, all the lunar modules that landed on the moon, I believe their descent stages are still on the moon. Spooky. Which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I didn't actually, I knew there were six lunar modules and I knew that they're therefore had, that that landed on the moon. And there therefore had to be multiple descent stages on the Earth moon, but I don't think I ever connected that they were still there. Yeah, I'd never connected that either. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. 
So the ascent stage, as we mentioned earlier, was the control center of the elm. This was required to, and again, I got these requirements from that news release that I talked about earlier, and these are word for word. So it provided a controlled environment for the two astronauts while separated from the CSM, so that is the control service module. Provide required visibility for lunar landing, stay, and ascent, and for rendezvous and docking with the control module. Provide for astronaut and equipment transfer between the LEM and control module and between the LEM and the lunar surface. And the last one being protect the astronauts and the equipment from micrometeoroid penetration. So in order to accomplish this, the ascent stage had three main areas. It had a crew compartment, a midsection, and an equipment bay. So the cabin was made up of the crew compartment and the midsection. So when we say cabin, it's both of those sections. And this was 235 square feet. Ooh. For reference, the average size of a studio apartment in New York City is 550 square feet. That is tiny. It's really small. It is very, very small. Oh, man. Um, so it is less than half of a already small apartment. Wow. I, I, like, they did not have a lot of space in there. They didn't even sit down when they were piloting it. Yeah. But um, Henna is actually going to talk to you more about that. That is really interesting and pretty crazy. It is. So this was constructed of aluminum with titanium fasteners, and it employed an aircraft-type construction. It had instrument panels and flight controls and an ascent propulsion system, or APS, engine. This had two hypergolic propellant tanks, so I talked about what a hypergol was up above. And this allowed for return to lunar orbit and to rendezvous with the command and service module. So the ascent engine was actually the least complicated of the three main engines in the Apollo space vehicle. So that would be the descent and service module engines were the, being the other two. That's incredible because all the requirements you just listed, it makes it sound so complex. I can't believe like in reference to the de- descent engine, it's not as complex. Yeah. So I actually thought about this a lot because I was like, how would it be a less complicated engine? Mm-hmm. And in part, it's because when they were landing, they had to get that exact landing. And I think they had to they had to fight gravity and constantly slow down. And that precision. Yes, that had a lot of precision. Where This one right. had to speed up. But it also, in order to make the rendezvous happen, and I think while the main engine was simpler, was because it also had a reaction control system for attitude and translation with 16 hypergolic thrusters. So I hinted about, hinted about that up above. These had their own propellant supply, and they were similar to the ones on the service module. So it would make sense that the ascent module would have all these RCS thrusters because it, in order to complete that rendezvous, it would need to line up exactly with right. the service module. So it was a heavier emphasis on the RCS system than it was on the actual engine itself, which mm-hmm. is why the engine was simpler. That I had sense. to think about that a lot. Yeah. Because that also really confused me. I was like, why is it a simpler engine? The right. ascent stage has the harder job. Right. With all these yes. requirements and yeah. And it's because that RCS system took the bulk of the work. So so moving on, it also had a forward EVA hatch for access to the lunar surface. So that's what you see when they're like, oh, the, the, the astronauts land and then they like pop open a hatch. That would be the hatch. And then there was also an overhead docking port for access to the command module. So the ascent stage contained a lot of systems as well as an antenna for communication with the Earth and the command module. It had a significant amount of technical systems. If you are interested in learning all about every monitor and sensor on the LEM, please look at the technical paper I will link below. This is this Apollo News reference I mentioned earlier. It goes through every technical detail of the LEM. So please check that out. I am just going to give you a very short synopsis of some of the things on it. 
So it had electrical storage batteries, cooling water, and then breathing oxygen restored in amounts sufficient for a lunar surface stay of 48 hours. This was just for the first few missions. This was later extended to 75 hours because if you are familiar with the lunar landing missions, a couple of the later missions used a rover. So the astronauts were actually able to drive around on the surface, requiring a longer mission duration. Um, during rest periods while parked on the moon, the crew would sleep on hammocks slung crosswise in the cabin. So just for reference, the crew compartment height was only 7 feet 8 inches, and the crew compartment depth was 3 feet 6 inches. Wow, Anna, that's a really small space. Do you happen to know how long the astronauts spent uh, time in there? So I only actually looked up the mission duration for how long they were on the moon for the Apollo 11 mission. I didn't look up any of the others because I realized I didn't actually know how long they were, the astronauts were on the moon for Apollo 11. So as I mentioned earlier, there were three astronauts for the Apollo 11 mission. There was pilot Michael Collins, lunar module pilot Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and then there was Neil Armstrong. Commander Neil Armstrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot his title. <laughs> so only Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went to the moon. Pilot Michael Collins. So as I mentioned earlier, he was the command module pilot. Because of that, he stayed behind with the command module. So he was in the command module while Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were on the Earth. And, oh my god, were on the moon. And so they were on the moon for a total of 21 hours. But of this 21 hour, Aldrin only spent one hour and 33 minutes on the surface. Followed by Neil, and Neil Armstrong spent one hour and 41 minutes on the lunar surface. But they were on the moon for a total of 21 hours. Gotcha. So they spent almost no time actually on walking out on the surface. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So they spent a lot of time in that really tiny group. Yeah. Of that's a lot of time. <laughs> and so then the overall height of the ascent stage was 9 feet, 3.5 inches, and the width was 14 feet, 1 inch. So as I mentioned earlier, the majority of this information was from this Apollo news reference about the lunar module. What's really cool about the lunar module and a lot of other NASA programs that um is that almost everything is available on the internet the what feels like the entire design of the lunar module is available to you on the internet right yeah. i was searching for the lunar module and then i came across pnids which stand for piping and instrumentation diagrams of the lunar module like the old yeah. diagrams as well as all the electrical wiring diagrams there is some crazy stuff out there yeah. about this you can even find um, so the J2 engine, um, was the engine for the S4B and the S2. So that is the second and third stage of the Saturn V. You can find the original drawings of that all over the internet. Very cool. So if you want design information about most anything, please, you can check it out on the internet. I had a really hard time deciding what to pick out to say in the podcast because there, this design is so detailed. Yes. So I just tried to give you all an overview. But if there's anything you're curious about, go explore it yourself. Yeah, the, the information's information out, out there. <laughs> <laughs> I can only think of like reading Rainbow. <laughs> so please check it out if you wanted more information. And so Hannah's about to dive us into the history, but first, do you want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a break. Sweet. All right, we're back from our break. Hannah, I can't wait to hear about the history. 
And I had such a fantastic time searching the history because it gets a little dramatic. Is and it juicy? It's real juicy. So I I'm really wait. excited to talk about Give it. Give us the gossip about the lunar module, <laughs> Henna. Here it goes. So the lunar module was originally called the Lunar Excursion Module, the acronym LEM, L-E-M. And it was designed after NASA chose to reach the moon via Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, L-O-R, or LOR. Instead of a direct ascent or Earth Orbit Rendezvous, E-O-R, Earth Orbit Rendezvous, or EOR. (laughs) I don't know if that's how the acronyms for those orbits... I'm here for it completely. We're going to go with them because EOR is fun to say. I think so too. Right. So So then what is the difference between a lunar orbit rendezvous and an Earth Orbit Rendezvous? Good question, Anna. So the direct ascent or the EOR would have involved landing a much heavier, complete Apollo spacecraft on the moon. It's where you have the lander launched into orbit in pieces, and then all those pieces are then assembled together in orbit. Okay. And then the... So all those pieces individually would have needed to be able to survive in orbit. So that's why it would weigh more? Yes. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Um, and then the lore, the... Lunar Orbit Rendezvous is uh, launched a fully assemble, assembled lander, so the Saturn V would lift both the Apollo Command and Lunar Modules into low Earth orbit, and then the Saturn V third stage would fire again to send both spacecraft to the moon. Okay, and we will put a picture on our website of the layout of the Saturn V. Yes. Just so you can kind of see how the Lunar Module connects to the S4B in the Command Module. What are you looking for? Were you looking for something? No, I keep turning around to burp. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Continue. So, all right. So they decided that they were going to go with the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. And then in July 1962, NASA invited 11 firms to submit proposals for the Lunar Excursion Module. Nine companies had responded by September, so within three months, nine companies had responded, and then Grumman Aircraft was awarded the contract, which was estimated to be $350 million, and they were given that contract two months later. Wow. Yeah, so things were moving really fast. I was supposed to say two months they were given the money after the contract? Right. I feel like that's an ex- quite the accelerated timeline. It's a very accelerated timeline. And then Grumman Aircraft, Grumman probably sounds familiar from Northrop Grumman, Grumman was founded in 1929 by Leroy Grumman. It merged in 1994 with Northrop Corporation, forming Northrop Grumman, the huge defense contractor that we know today. I didn't actually realize that that was like a joint venture. I think as I read up more about defense contractors, I learn more and more that a lot of them have come about from mergers. So when Grumman was awarded the contract, they actually had already begun some lunar orbit rendezvous studies in the late 1950s and then again in 1961. Grumman had initially four major subcontractors. One, Bell Aerospace Systems for the ascent engine. Two, Rocketdyne for the descent engine. Three, Hamilton Standard for environmental control systems. And then four, Marquardt for the reaction control system. The primary guidance navigation control system was developed by the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory. And the Apollo guidance computer was manufactured by Raytheon. Wow, it really takes a village. Yeah, it really does. 
And it's really cool as I'm reading through the history, as I was reading through it, all these defense contractors that we know today, you hear about them working on military contracts to be so involved with the moon mission. It's pretty cool. I also feel like, all right, the Saturn V and the LEM were NASA. Right. And that's kind of where it ends. Exactly. Yeah, NASA did a lot of the design, but they also contracted out a lot of people to manufacture it and Mm -hmm. develop a lot of the other components. Uh Uh-huh. They get kind of lost behind this cover of NASA. Exactly. All right. So the backup navigation tool, the abort guidance system, was developed by TRW. Anna touched on this earlier. The rocket engines were identified as the most critical subsystem. And so Grumman started that development first, realizing that it would take a lot more time. During the spring of 1963, Grumman hired Bell to develop the ascent engine. And they selected Bell because the company had experience with the Air Force Agena development. They hoped that the technology from the program would be applied to the lunar module. So what Agena was, was that it was an upper stage that flew on the Atlas rocket. It was capable of producing almost 70 kilonewtons of thrust. That's a lot of thrust. It's a lot of thrust. It was developed by the U.S. Air Force to be the nation's first intercontinental ballistic missile, capable of boosting a nuclear warhead to any target on Earth. Yeah, this is just like an aside. I did not know about the Gina. It was interesting that it was this military rocket that they found that it would be useful for the moon mission. Yeah, well, they actually used to use ballistic missiles to get things into orbit before we develop a lot of the systems we have now. Space vehicles and launch vehicles. Like, I think Sputnik was actually basically just delivered to orbit on top of a ballistic missile, more or less. It's interesting how far technology has come. Yeah. So then a year after the program began... A subsystem manager in Houston discovered that Grumman and Bell were using testing criteria left over from the Air Force Agena program, and that wasn't going to fly because Agena was unmanned and these criteria were not as strict as NASA needed for manned spacecraft. Putting people on something means it needs to be a heck of a lot safer. (laughs) Yeah. Darn, that's actually a big miss. Yeah, so you could imagine how stressed Houston must have been when they found this out. Yeah, that's rough. And then more rigorous standards were then imposed by Houston... And Grumman and Bell worked through that. So then the lunar module descent engine was the biggest challenge as Anna went over and the most outstanding technical development of Apollo. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. So the reason why it was so outstanding was because that the requirement for a throttleable engine was new to manned spacecraft. Little research had been done in variable thrust rocket engines. And NASA's primary effort in this field was the hydrogen-fueled RL-10 that was used in the S-4, and this had preceded the lunar module engine by only a few months. So you could imagine that that much research hadn't been done into this type of engine before. So then Rocketdyne proposed a method for the descent engine known as helium injection. And what this involves is that it introduces inert gas into the flow of propellants to decrease thrust while maintaining the same flow rate. What they realized was that this seemed like a plausible approach to throttleability, but the Marshall Space Center Apollo office directed Grumman to carry out a parallel development program and then to select the better design. Whoa. Yeah. So this is one thing. So they were competing against each other. Exactly. So, wow. So we don't know who the competitor is. I'm about to tell you. Oh, I can't but wait. But yeah, things are getting a little competitive now and a little dramatic. Things are getting interesting. Things There's are blood getting in interesting. the water. Blood in the water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's the competitor? So on March 14th, 1963, Grumman holds a bidders conference for the parallel developer. Basically a boxing match. 
and in May, STL, Space Technology Laboratories, which had originally lost out in the bidding for the engine, yeah. was then selected to develop the competitive motor. Nice. Yep. So STL proposed a pressure-fed hypergolic system that was gimbaled as well as throttleable. And the engine's mechanical throttling system used flow control valves and a variable area injector. So then STL and Rocketdyne continued this head-to-head competition through 1964. Wow. How long was that? That had been a year. So it had been a year since they had held that bidders conference. In November of 1964, the Apollo spacecraft manager in Houston told the NASA Apollo program director that he had established a committee of propulsion experts from Grumman, the Marshall and Lewis Centers, NASA headquarters, and the Air Force to choose the winner amongst these two technologies. And so these panel members get together and they visit both companies in December 1964. So the committee was created around November 1964. The following month, they head over to visit both companies a month later, and they couldn't decide on who to go with. After almost a year and a half, neither the helium injection nor the mechanical throttling system had proved to be better than the other. Whoa. Which is which is incredible to think That's about. That's really like, rare. I feel like there's yeah. almost always an obvious front runner. Right. In some metric or another, if it's not mass, cost, performance. That's right. really interesting that they, they were pretty much tied. They're pretty much tied. And what's really interesting is that they let them continue just working on it for a year and a half. Especially how quickly they were making decisions. Yeah. Like we said, accelerated timeline. Accelerated timeline. So in January 1965, Grumman decided to stick with Rocketdyne. But... This is when it gets real dramatic. Oh, Rocketdyne didn't win? Rocketdyne did not win because the Manned Spacecraft Center director then decided to appoint another five-member board to then weigh Grumman's recommendations and look through what they had found earlier when the committee had visited both sites and do a comparison between the different projects. On January 18th, the review board then reversed Grumman's decision and named STL instead of Rocketdyne the contractor for the engine. And the reason why they did that was because at that time, Rocketdyne was already tasked to develop the command module thrusters for Gemini. So canceling Mm. the descent engine in NASA's mind was, okay, Rocketdyne will be able to then focus their efforts on the Gemini project. And then they also made the engines for the other stages of the Saturn V, right? Yes, that is true. So they were making exactly. a lot of engines for this mission as a whole already. Exactly. That's interesting. Because I was about to say Rocketdyne didn't make it, but Rocketdyne made all the other engines. Right. Which I feel like is why they completely overshadow STL in history. That had quite the twists and turns. It definitely did have emotional quite the Emotional roller coaster. It was. Actually, for them, for those employees, coaster. it probably was. Actually, though, yeah. Could you imagine in that no. time getting so excited to win all this money for like, a job? You're going to work contract? on this for a year and a half. You originally told no. Yeah. We're, you're back now. You're, you're back. going to work on this for a year and a half while battling Rocketdyne, who is a very large institution. They're going to pick Rocketdyne. Right. So then you've lost it twice. And they're like, just kidding. It's yours now. Yeah. Whew. Nuts. A lot of stuff happened. A lot of stuff happened. What made it very crazy back in the day was because this rarely happened. It was an unusual situation these companies were put in, where Houston had vetoed a recommendation for a subcontractor made by a prime contractor. So then, moving on, Grumman chose Marquardt to build a lunar excursion module's third engine system, 
the small 100-pound thrust attitude control thrusters. Going a little bit back in time now that we're talking about Marquardt, in 1960, representatives from Marquardt had visited Langley to discuss the propulsion work that they were about to do, and Langley was interested in a bipropellant thruster. It was promised to be more superior to the monopropellant engine that was used in Mercury. I don't know. I think monopropellant engines are pretty cool. Yeah, I think both of them have their advantages. I do think they both have their advantages, but I just have a soft spot for monopropellant engines. Yeah. You know what? We can always do another episode in the future to talk about the different types of thrusters. That's a great idea. We should definitely do that. If you're interested in that, let us know. Let us know. Please contact us. We want to hear from you. That's not the end of the story, is it, though? No. So we're going to keep talking about Marquardt. So in mid-1962, NASA decided to use the Marquardt engine for the service module. Rocketdyne supplied the command module thrusters, which were similar to those it was already developing for Gemini. Nice. And then Marquardt would furnish attitude control engines and a mounting structure and perform some tests of the propellant system. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm just listing all the different components that went into the project. So that's why I'm jumping between what the different companies did. So going back to the jumping... Grumman would then provide tanks that they purchased from Bell, and they would also provide propellant lines and the pressurization system. And then Apollo officials had expected that the service module thrusters, with only some modification, could also be used in the lander. But that kind of common use actually proved difficult when they tried to test that out. Thruster tests at Beth Bage and at Marquardt's Magic Mountain facility in California during the first half of 1964 show that a technical problem existed when they tested the engines out. The engine backfired at ignition, and a rapid rise in temperature and pressure caused the engine to explode. That's a pretty catastrophic failure. That's a yeah, pretty terrible that's a failure. pretty catastrophic failure mode. <laughs> From then, Grumman actually wanted to do a parallel development with another company again, like they had done for the decent engine, but then NASA had turned down that request by Grumman. Do you think they pushed for all this parallel development because of the space race? I could see that, right? Like the pressure of the space race put all this pressure on the timeline. They wanted to make sure that they would have working technology. As fast as they could get it. Exactly. Which would be parallel development. Right. The downside to parallel development is it's very expensive. But good news, Marquardt eliminated the backfiring issue by installing a small pre-combustion chamber inside the engine. Man, nice job, Marquardt. Nice job. But as an aside, when I saw Marquardt had a magic mountain facility in California, I was like, Six Flags Magic Mountain. And I immediately thought about the theme park. So I looked it up on Google Maps, and I definitely spent 30 minutes trying to figure out the location of the... I don't think there is a better use of 30 minutes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Anna. Um, So is it the same magic mountain, Hannah? Oh, man, they're so close together. Apparently, Magic Mountain, the theme park was bought by Six Flags. Six Flags bought land from Newhall Land and Farming Company. And that land was actually named Magic Mountain. And then they added Six Flags in front of it. So is Magic Mountain like the area where they bought the land? Exactly. There's like the Magic Mountain area. And right by it, there is the Angeles Forest. And that's where the testing site was. So it was by this piece of land called Magic Mountain. Exactly. So that's why it's the Magic Mountain testing facility. I get it. Okay. And so then I went down this rabbit hole to figure out where Magic Mountain actually was. Because you can't just type into Google Maps, Marquardt Magic Mountain facility. So is it not a mountain? I'm picturing like a Space Mountain roller coaster. So it's a national park. So I went down this uh, this rabbit hole, 
<laughs> this other rabbit hole, reading someone's recent bike ride up to the Magic Mountain in Angeles National Forest to see the actual Marquardt Magic Mountain facility. That's cool. Yeah. It's still there? It's still there. You can still see remnants of the test stands there. That's awesome. Yeah, spooky. I kind of want to go. Field trip. So those are my asides. But all right, let's move forward from the engines and let's talk about the father of the lunar module. The Apollo lunar module was led by Grumman aerospace engineer Thomas J. Kelly, and he became known as the father of the lunar module. That's quite the legacy. Yeah. And the first LEM design looked like a smaller version of the Apollo command and service module. It had a cone-shaped cabin atop of a cylindrical propulsion section. The second design, I was reading this online, and the example that they used was that the second design makes you think of a helicopter cockpit with large curved windows and seats. I'll link the source. This second design also included a second forward docking port, which allowed the LM crew to take an active role in docking with the CSM. This was followed by many redesigns to save weight, improve the safety for the crew, and fix any problems that arose. The first thing to go were the heavy cockpit windows and the seats. So, yeah, yeah, this wh- is nuts. This is crazy, because when I read that the seats went, I didn't realize that the astronauts stood. I did know the program almost did not succeed because of the lunar module weighing too much. It was almost, almost could not go forward. So the overhaul of the LM is famously a really big deal. But it was so big that they were like, you all have to stand for getting rid of the seats. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. So these astronauts were supported by a cable and pulley system. And there were smaller triangular windows to give them enough visibility of the landing site. Glass is heavy. And then after that, the redundant forward docking part was also removed, which meant that the command pilot gave up having active control of docking to the command module. The configuration for this design was frozen in April 1963 when the ascent and descent engine designs were decided. So that's what I talked about earlier. Oh, I got it. Okay, it's all coming full circle. Yeah, all coming full circle. The power for the LEM was initially produced by fuel cells built by Pratt & Whitney, similar to the CSM. But in March 1965, these were discarded in favor of an all-battery design. Mm. Uh, the initial design had three landing legs, which was the lightest possible configuration. When you think about it, any particular landing leg in this situation, when there's three, would have to carry the weight of the vehicle if it landed at any sort of significant angle. Oh, because there's three, like, I'm thinking like a bar stool. Yeah. So, like, if you were to angle that. Exactly. um, Too far, it would land on one leg, regardless of, like, what direction you were angling it. That's a beautiful visual, Anna. Thank you. That makes, that is exactly what it is. Where if you had four legs, at a lot of harsh angles, you would still have two legs supporting the whole thing. That's And then if you think about it, if you take that bar stool and chop off one of its legs... You're going to fall over. So that was... Also true. (laughs) Having three landing legs was the least stable configuration in the case of damage to any of those legs during landing. And then the next iteration was five legs as the most stable configuration. It's interesting how they jumped from three to five, and then they decided, let's go with four. (laughs) But then they decided that the five leg landing configuration was too heavy and the designers compromised on four. I like how they said compromise when they were initially being given three. (laughs) 
So I'm thinking in my head, like, if you have five and one goes out, you'll still have four and you'll be relatively stable. Yeah. But if you have four and one goes out, depending, I feel like, what the terrain is and where that one leg is, those three legs could still be unable to support the vehicle. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. I see why they would jump to five. Yeah. But that is funny. And then in June 1966, so throughout this episode, you've probably heard us interchange the acronym LM with LEM with me saying Lunar Excursion Module and then us also pronouncing the acronym as LEM. In June 1966, the name was changed to Lunar Module. So initially I told you that it was the Lunar Excursion Module, but in 1966 it was updated to Lunar Module eliminating the word excursion from that acronym. So I don't think I actually realized why the LM acronym was pronounced LEM. I thought that was the lazy way of pronouncing LM. No. Actually, I read something about this. The pronunciation of the abbreviation didn't change because it had become such a habit amongst the engineers and the astronauts and then also the media when they were constantly covering it. I can also see that there is no way to say LM, right? In the English language, you need a vowel in there. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the lum. (laughs) Yeah. So you either have to say LM. Yeah. Or lunar module. Exactly. So the reason why this name was updated was actually George Lowe, the manager of the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office, was afraid that the word excursion would make the Apollo program seem frivolous. That's how that decision was made. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it, but that's okay. That's okay. So that's what I have for the history. That was a lot of history. But very interesting. That was interesting. I didn't realize just how dramatic that was. How much parallel development they were doing. Yeah. Man, so many places it almost failed. So many places it almost failed and so many twists and turns. That was an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I think I need a break. Yeah, let's take a break. Now that we're done with the history, I think the natural progression in the podcast is to talk about the current plans to go to the moon. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering to be like, oh, I hear all the time about people wanting to go to Mars. Are we planning to go to the moon again? And we actually are. That is actually a really hot topic in recent news. And I think that was sparked in part by the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. So what is different about space research now compared to almost 70 years ago is a lot of things, including 70 years of development. But one of the main ones is the introduction of private space companies. Essentially, there are more cooks in the kitchen. Before, the only company in the U.S. making these things was NASA. Now, there are multiple other companies throwing their hats in the ring, which leads to a lot of diversity of thought and leads to a lot of interesting innovation. Yeah. So the first and probably the most popular one is the SpaceX Starship. Elon Musk, who I'm sure most of you have heard of before, is the first space entrepreneur to propose a lunar tourism program to regular people. So this is not just to astronauts, it's to regular everyday people who can pay the price tag to go to the moon. So in February 2017, Musk announced a plan to fly two space tourists on a trajectory around the moon in 2023. And then they famously found their first client, Japanese fashion mogul Yusaku Maazawa. So Maazawa is expected to complete the trip in a spacecraft called Starship, which I actually think is a great name. Yeah. Whose prototypes are set for testing this fall, pretty soon. So the original plan was to fly people around the moon, and then Musk actually announced that the Starship would be able to land on the moon's surface as well. It was really up in the stakes. We could expect a fully commercial lunar tourism program by SpaceX in as little as three years, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it. That's exciting. It's a lot sooner than I think any of us realize. I'm intrigued to see how this pans out. 
So then the next one is actually very recent, and this was the Blue Origin Blue Moon Lunar Lander. So on May 9th, 2019, so not even that long ago, yeah. the company unveiled a mock-up of a lunar lander named Blue Moon that has been in the works for three years. There's actually a YouTube video on this. In this YouTube video, we will link it. Jeff Bezos announced Club for the Future. So Jeff Bezos is the CEO of Amazon. So Blue Origin is a different company, but it is owned by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos in this video announces the Blue Moon Lunar Lander, and he also announces something called Club for the Future. And this is a space club for students. So what's this space club? Because it sounds like my kind of club. (laughs) So it's actually really interesting. You can go online. We will put their website below. It's called Club for the Future, and it's actually aimed at students trying to get them interested in space again. And so they did a really cool thing where Blue Origin has a program called New Shepard. And I think in the future, especially if you are all interested, we will do an episode about private space companies and about their popular space vehicles. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I actually think that would be really cool. There's a ton of space companies even beyond just the big ones. Right. They did a whole thing where they allowed students to like fill out postcards and send the black to Blue Origin. And then they're going to fly up on one of their New Shepard missions. And then when they get the postcards back, they're going to send them back to the students. And I thought that was really cool. So if you are interested in space, if you have a child or a student in your life who's interested in space, direct them to Club for the Future. Back to the Blue Moon Lunar Lander. The Lunar Lander is expected to make its first landing by 2023. And if successful, a crewed mission will follow. So the next one, actually, interestingly enough, is another one of these like joint ventures, kind of what Hannah talked about earlier. But this one is Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Mastin. It's the Zeus Lander. I think it said Zeus, but it's spelled X-E-U-S. <laughs> So I don't know. How? What other way is there to pronounce that? I don't know. So I'm going with Zeus. Let's do it. Let's go with Zeus. So in 2006, Boeing and Lockheed Martin formed a space launch service called the United Launch Alliance or ULA. You might hear about this a lot in the news. They have a big contract out right now. The goal is to launch satellites of all different kinds. So that's weather, communication, national security satellites, etc. So in 2015, the joint venture became partners with Mastin Space Systems, and they specialize in vertical landing technology. The goal of this venture was to develop a moon lander called Zeus, which can carry up to 10 tons of payload, which is an incredible amount of payload. Unfortunately, the project was halted in 2018 as ULA prioritized other internal projects. However, the project was not terminated to my understanding. It was just shelved and could very possibly come back, especially with this newfound excitement over the moon. Cool. Yeah, I really hope we get to see that again, because it sounded really interesting. Yeah, and the name was awesome. So then on kind of a little bit of a different note, we have Bigelow Aerospace. I didn't know this. They were founded in 1999 by Bob Bigelow, who is a Las Vegas hotel mogul. Did you know that? Yeah, I actually, I did know that. I did not know that. I had to research him for his inflatables back when I was in school. And when I learned that, I was like, oh my gosh. Hannah actually kind of led us into this. So right now, Bigelow makes inflatable crew areas for the ISS. Right. So they go up to orbit and then they can inflate them and they're used on the ISS. Mm -hmm. So they want to use this technology to develop an inflatable moon base. I thought that was really interesting because I'd only known Bigelow for its inflatables in orbit, not for an inflatable on the base. Trying to take the same technology, but to make an inflatable moon base. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially because it's just an adaption of a currently existing technology. Mm-hmm. All right. And then I thought we would check out our partners across the pond <laughs> with the European space industry. I feel like we don't talk about them a lot. <laughs> but we should. We should. There are a lot of really interesting space developments in space programs outside of the United States. Yeah. We don't talk about them a lot because that kind of information is not commonly shared across countries because of this thing called ITAR, mm-hmm. International Trade and Arms Regulation. 
we know more about American companies than we would know about any other countries. And also just because our media will focus more on the companies that are closer to us. And we can always do some extra research and figure Figure out what else is going on. Figure out what else is going on. Exactly. Yeah. The European Space Agency, which is the European counterpart of NASA, announced a plan to build a 3D printed lunar base. I thought this was incredible. That's really awesome. There's a YouTube video about it. I highly recommend everybody go watch it. We'll have the link in our show notes. This would consist of a dome-shaped bone structure, and that would be covered with a 3D-printed layer of lunar regolith. Very cool. I know. I thought so, too. And this would provide protection from radiation and micrometeoroids. Awesome. Yes. So, actually, NASA has a term for when you're using any sort of material off of a planetary body on that body. It's called ISRU. That's the term. In situ resource utilization. So, in this situation, when you're using regolith on the moon to print structures for the moon you're using the resources on the moon and that's really great because you're saving mass from being launched oh so instead of having to launch everything up to the moon we're using what's already there that's what isru means yes so then we couldn't end this without talking about nasa nasa released a video titled we are going and this was released on may 14th 2019 five days after the announcement of blue origins lunar lander the tagline for this video is we are going to the moon to stay by 2024 and this is how This is also a very interesting video. We will link that too. This mission is going to be called Artemis after the Greek goddess of the hunt and the moon. Artemis is a woman's name, at least in Greek mythology. Fabulous. Yes, I liked that a lot. I'm a fan. What was really fun about this is that Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. The lunar missions were the Apollo program. Oh, that's such a fitting name. This was really smart. I thought this was really well researched. What was also fun about this was I was like, well, if Artemis is a woman's name, does that mean they are going to bring women to the moon? The NASA administrator, Jim Bernstein, has promised that the mission will deliver the first woman to the moon. Heck yes. I know. I thought that was really wonderful. I did not mention this earlier, but the 12 astronauts who went on the lunar surface were all men. All of the astronauts on the Apollo missions were men. I think it is incredible that as a society, we have matured to the point where a woman could go to the moon. Take us to the moon, NASA. (laughs) Come on, NASA. We want to go. The next point to this being is how much does getting to the moon cost? Especially if we're talking about the possibility of it becoming like a commercial trip you can take. Perfect lead-in to information that I have. And it's all about putting costs into perspective. The Apollo project cost the government about $25.8 billion between 1960 and 1973. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of cheddar. Yes, it is. $25.8 billion over the course of 13 years, according to data collected by a space nonprofit called the Planetary Society. So is that $25.8 billion today or $25.8 billion back then? Yeah, so I had to double check this. It is actually $25.8 billion back then. This is actually not that much if you think about NASA's budget today, because their budget today is almost $21.5 billion for only one year. Back then, the Apollo project cost $25.8 billion over 13 years. And today, NASA's budget is $21.5 billion for one year. All right. It sounds better when you phrase it that way. Yes. But then, so say we take that number, that $25.8 billion, and then we adjust it for inflation. That number then becomes $283. billion, according to the Planetary Society's calculations. And then you take that number and you adjust it in terms of gross domestic product, which places that expenditure in the context of like the overall economy. 
And that price goes up to $641.4 billion. That's insane. That is so much money. That is, yes, wow. Yeah, it blew my mind. I think something else we have to mention when we talk about the Apollo program is that the Apollo program was amazing. Yes. And we got to the moon and it is truly incredible. We made a lot of strides in technology in that short period of time. Yes, we made a lot of strides in that short period of time. However, a lot of people made sacrifices to make that happen for us. Mm -hmm. Whether they were personal, astronauts gave their lives. We spent a lot of money to do this. Yes. And it was an amazing, amazing accomplishment. But I still think we need to acknowledge all the work and sacrifice that everyone put in to make this happen for us. Yep, absolutely. I agree. And on that note, I don't think I have anything else. Do no, you? I have nothing else. Wow, that was a lot of information. It was, yeah, but it was all so interesting. It really was. The lunar module is truly amazing. An incredible feat of yes. engineering. It really is an incredible feat of engineering. And if there's anything we talked about that you would like to dig into further, please, like you mentioned earlier, it is all on the internet for you. Go check it out. We have just pulled together what we thought would be the best overview for you. However, if anything seems more interesting or you want more info, go find it. Go you, find there's it. so much interesting stuff out there about the a lunar module that we just could not fit into this episode. Yes. And we'll also link all of our sources on our website, but it is rocketscience.com. Check out our Instagram, yes. but it is rocketscience. Feel free to email us on our website or shoot us a message on Instagram. Let us know what you want us to talk about in the future. Yeah. Or if there's anything particularly interesting that we said. If we said anything wrong, <laughs> correct us. <laughs> correct us and yeah. we'll correct it. Exactly. So just to do a quick overview of sources, I did mostly the NASA website. And then I had this Apollo news release from NASA that just had all the data I had a couple other websites thrown in there, and I had a bunch of YouTube videos that effectively described the future moon missions we will hopefully get from other companies. Hannah, what did you have? I also had a lot of documentation that I referenced from the NASA headquarters websites, and I'll link all of those on the website. I looked at the Planetary Society's website for the costs, and the GINA program, I checked out the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force website, and then I also used Wikipedia as a source. I used Wikipedia too. Yeah. It's a really good springboard. And then we will have all our sources linked in the episode notes. Anna, so I think there's no better way to end this episode except with words from the legendary Neil Armstrong. So can you take that away? Houston, tranquility base here. The eagle has landed.